Welcome to The Site of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Lesnetsky Guy and Law, and each week I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's decisions coming out of the six Florida District Courts of Appeal and the Florida Supreme Court, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of The Site of the Crime. Welcome to The Site of the Crime. Our Florida DCA case law update edition for the week of January 30th through February 3rd. We have six cases to talk about today. Uh, Two from the first DCA, one from the second, one from the fourth. And we have our very first two uh, opinions from the newly created sixth DCA. We're going to be talking about hearsay during probation violation hearings, bloody trails, writs of prohibition, and certiorari and more. As a side note, how do you say certiorari? A colleague of mine came up to me the other day and said she liked the way I said it. And then I got to thinking, am I even saying it right? Have I been pronouncing it wrong after all these years? So I did what any self-respecting person would do, and I googled it. How to pronounce certiorari. And at first, there were some videos that popped up titled How to Pronounce Certiorari Correctly, and sure enough, there were two correct ways, and neither of which was how I pronounce it. So I got a little discouraged, but then I got to thinking. I had to have learned to pronounce it this way somewhere. So I scrolled down and and finally came to an old 2014 ABA journal article. And wouldn't you know it that of the 13 current and former justices listed in the article, there were seven different pronunciations. Seven. Differences between the Sirshi or the Sertsi, and between Rari or Rari, and more. And if you're wondering, Justice Alito and Justice Stevens agree with me by pronouncing it Sertsi So at least I'm not alone. So if you want to see how your favorite justice pronounces it, Google how to pronounce Sertsi and scroll down to the article. Fun times. But I digress. On with the show. Our first case today is Martina v. State. This is a Florida First DCA case that was released February 1st, 2023. Martina is a fine and surcharge case out of Alcola County. Mr. Martina was charged with various counts of burglary of a dwelling, grand theft of a firearm, grand theft of a motor vehicle, and grand theft. On appeal, he argues that the trial judge erred by imposing a lump sum $2,765 in court costs, which included a fine of $2,000 and a surcharge. Mr. Martina filed a Rule 3.800 subsection B2 motion challenging the $2,000 fine and the surcharge that was included in the overall court cost under Section 775.083 subsection 1. Because the trial court didn't rule on the motion within 60 days, it is deemed denied and Mr. Martina appealed to the uh, first DCA. Section 775.083 sets out the fine schedule for criminal offenses, which includes a fine of up to $10,000 for a second-degree felony and up to $5,000 for a third-degree felony. The statute states that a person who has been convicted of an offense other than a capital felony may be sentenced to pay a fine. 
so the trial court has discretion to levy a fine in addition to other punishments. But because they are discretionary costs, the trial court must specifically pronounce the fine at sentencing to give the defendant notice and an opportunity to be heard. And here the trial court didn't orally pronounce a $2,000 fine or surcharge. So the case was affirmed in part on other grounds, it was vacated in part, and remanded to delete the fine and the surcharge. Our second case today is Mathis Sims v. State. And this is a Florida first DCA case that was released February 1st of 2023. And Mathis Sims is a violation of probation case based on hearsay out of Bay County. Mr. Mathis Sims was charged with violating his probation by committing a battery on his ex-girlfriend. At the violation hearing, the state only presented one witness, the investigating officer. Mr. Mathis Sims' ex-girlfriend did not testify, and there were no eyewitnesses. The investigating officer testified that the victim told him that Mr. Mathis Sims broke into her apartment, grabbed her by the hair, and dragged her down the stairs. She was able to get away. All of this was hearsay, of course, but hearsay is admissible in a violation of probation case. The officer also testified that the victim was upset when the officer got there, the screens to her windows had been removed, the back door and door frame were damaged where it appeared the door had been kicked in, the victim's hair wraps and fake eyelashes were on the stairs, her face was swollen, and Mr. Mathis Sims kept calling her while the officer was investigating. The state also admitted photos of the victim's injuries, the damaged door, the removed window screens, and the fake eyelashes and hair wraps. The trial court found that Mr. Mathis Sims violated his probation by committing a battery and sentenced him to 10 years in prison. On appeal, Mr. Mathis Sims argued that the trial court erred by finding him in violation because the state presented no direct evidence that he actually committed the battery. After all, no witness testified that he did commit the battery. The first DCA began by describing the broad discretion trial judges have in BOP hearings. Probation is a matter of grace and not of right. Defendants who are on probation have already been afforded full due process in the original proceedings and are not entitled to the same protections in a violation of probation proceeding. However, it is well established that probation may not be revoked based on hearsay alone. So the question here is whether the trial court's decision was based on hearsay alone, and if not, whether the evidence was sufficient to support a violation finding. In Russell v. State, the Florida Supreme Court resolved a district court conflict on the issue whether a trial court may find a violation for an alleged battery where the state presented a hearsay statement of the victim, which would be inadmissible at trial, and presented non-hearsay testimony from an officer about the victim's injury and the circumstances of the investigation. In that case, the victim also uh, did not testify at the VOP hearing, but the officer did testify. And he testified that the victim told him that the defendant grabbed her hair and struck her um, on the neck. The officer and Russell also testified that the victim was nervous and frightened and had a mark on the back of her neck. The 5th DCA upheld the trial court's finding that Mr. Russell violated his probation based on those facts and and that decision was in conflict with decisions out of the 2nd DCA and the 4th DCA. 
In resolving the conflict, the Florida Supreme Court held that corroboration of every aspect should not be required to uphold the finding that a defendant violated his probation based on hearsay evidence, and it should be dependent on the facts and circumstances of each case. So in Russell, the Florida Supreme Court rejected a per se rule that every aspect of hearsay evidence must be corroborated by non-hearsay evidence. And here, an officer testified to the victim's hearsay statements, which were corroborated by the officer's observations and photos of the crime scene and the victim's injuries. Mr. Mathis Sims argued that the first DCA's decision in Melton v. State was at odds with its decision here, but the first DCA distinguished Melton, which involved an allegation that the defendant violated probation by testing positive for drugs. In that case, the probation officer who conducted the drug test did not testify, and the state called the probation officer who had no personal knowledge of that drug test. So all there was was a drug test report, which is hearsay, and there was no evidence to corroborate the hearsay statements. So the first DCA found Melton inapplicable and determined that there is no need for direct evidence establishing that a defendant committed a battery while on probation. Instead, hearsay statements corroborated by an officer's observations that support the hearsay statements is all that is required. So case affirmed. Our third case today is Weston v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released February 3rd, 2023. Weston is a 3.800 motion case out of Pasco County. Mr. Weston entered an open plea to two drug cases with a 10-year cap. The trial court sentenced him to 10 years as an habitual felony offender. He filed a 3.800 subsection A motion and the state conceded error. So he was resentenced to the 10 years but without the HFO designation. But upon resentencing, the trial court didn't mark the little box that gives prison credit for the amount of time that he had served in the Department of Corrections prior to that resentencing. So Mr. Weston filed another 3.800A motion to correct that sentence. Mr. Weston then filed a notice asking the trial court to strike the 3.800 subsection A motion and he filed a 3.800 subsection B motion in its place. The trial court struck the 3.800 subsection A motion and denied the the, uh, 3.800 subsection B motion as untimely. The trial court relied on Reekman v. State, a Florida Supreme Court case that held that a defendant must demonstrate why a claim raised in a successive 3.850 motion was not previously raised. The trial court also relied on Rule of Procedure 3.850 subsection H2, which states that a second or successive 3.850 motion may be dismissed if it fails to allege a new or different ground. Mr. Weston appealed, and the second DCA found that the trial court improperly relied on Reichman and 3.850 subsection H2 because they relate to 3.850 motions. And Rule 3.800, subsection A2, has no requirement that a defendant allege a new or different claim that wasn't previously raised. A claim for prison time credit is properly raised in a 3.800, subsection A motion. And even though Mr. Weston asked the court to strike his 3.800A motion, and he filed the 3.800, subsection B motion instead, which relates to correcting sentencing errors, 
the trial court should have treated his 3.800 subsection B motion as a 3.800 subsection A motion. When a defendant files a properly pleaded post-conviction claim but incorrectly styles the motion, the post-conviction court must treat the claim as if it had been appropriately styled. So case reversed and remanded. Our fourth case today is State v. Mancuso. This is a Florida 4th DCA case that was released February 1st, 2023. Mancuso is a case about a judge's jurisdiction, or lack thereof, to order a defendant into a diversionary program over the state's objection, and this case is out of Broward County. Mr. Mancuso was charged with DUI with injury or property damage. The trial court over the state and the victim's objection transferred the case to Veterans Court. The state then filed a petition for writ of prohibition, or in the alternative, a petition for writ of certiorari. So what authority does a judge have to direct a case to a diversion program over the state's objection? And then what is the appropriate vehicle for the state to challenge that decision? The state filed the petition for writ of prohibition, asking the 4th DCA to prohibit the county court judge from sending the case to Veterans Court. This is an extraordinary writ where a higher court prevents a lower court from acting outside its authority. And a writ of prohibition is the proper vehicle to challenge a trial court's interference with prosecutorial discretion. Because Mr. Mancuso's participation in the diversion program has an ongoing effect of delaying the state's ability to prosecute, a writ of prohibition is the proper remedy in this case. The state argued that the decision whether to charge and prosecute is an executive function, not a judicial function, and the state attorney has complete discretion to decide whether to prosecute and how to prosecute under Article 2, Section 3 of the Florida Constitution. The issue was addressed by the Florida Supreme Court in Cleveland v. State, or Cleveland 1, where a circuit court judge ordered the Department of Corrections to accept a defendant into a pretrial intervention program. The Florida Supreme Court held that the trial court had no authority to review the prosecutor's reasons for refusing to refer the case to PTI and quashed the circuit court's order. Here, the 4th DCA reviewed three different statutes relating to the pretrial diversion, all of which state that the defendant must apply for the program with the state attorney's office. The 4th DCA reads those provisions to require the state attorney's approval as a prerequisite for admission into the program. And the state attorney's decision is not subject to second-guessing by the courts. Because the state attorney objected to Mr. Mancuso's admission into Veterans Court, the trial court acted beyond its judicial authority, and the 4th DCA issued a writ of prohibition. The court then considered the alternative position for writ of certiorari. To obtain certiorari relief, there must be a material injury that cannot be corrected on appeal. Here the court held that the state was harmed by the trial court's order because it infringed on its prosecutorial decision-making and negated the state's ability to prosecute its case. And the harm could not be remedied on appeal because it infringed on the state's prosecutorial discretion and violated the separation of powers doctrine. 
The court determined that the trial court departed from the essential requirements of law because the statutes at issue require state attorney approval and require the defendant to apply to the state attorney's office, which Mr. Mancuso did not do. So the 4th DCA quashed the trial court's order, transferring the case to Veterans Court. Petition for writ of prohibition and certiorari granted. Our fifth case today is Brand V State. This is a Florida 6 DCA case that was released February 3rd, 2023. It's the first time we're talking about a 6 DCA case on this podcast. As a reminder, the 6 DCA is the brand new District Court of Appeal that was created on January 1st of this year. And Brand is an alleged improper comment by a prosecutor case out of Orange County. Mr. Brand was charged with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He came under investigation by law enforcement, although the opinion doesn't elaborate on how. But apparently as a police captain was walking up to him, Mr. Brand blurted out that he had a firearm in his back pocket. Luckily, there was body camera footage. Unluckily, the audio recording didn't start until after Mr. Brand made the alleged statements. At trial, Mr. Brand denied possessing the firearm and denied admitting to possessing the firearm. During closing argument, the prosecutor was comparing Mr. Brand's testimony to the officer's testimony and started running down the jury instruction factors when considering the credibility of a witness. The prosecutor then said, Has the witness been convicted of a felony? Deputy Worth has not been convicted of a felony. And Mr. Brand objected to the facts not in evidence because there has been no evidence as to whether the officer had or had not been convicted of a felony. The judge then overruled the objection, and the matter never came up again. On appeal, Mr. Brand argued that the trial court erred in overruling the objection. And the 6th DCA agreed. But Mr. Brand still loses because the 6th DCA determined that there was no reasonable possibility that the brief, isolated comment affected the verdict. So the error was harmless. Case affirmed. Our sixth and final case today is Jefferson v. State. This is a Florida 6 DCA case that was released February 3, 2023. Jefferson is a case involving the suppression of a cell phone in a first-degree murder case out of Orange County. A woman's body and other items, including pairs of pants, were found floating in a canal and covered by a large comforter and trash bags. The body had multiple stab and slash wounds. The officer's job wasn't too difficult because there were drag marks that led all the way up to a building, and then there was a trail of blood that led straight up to Mr. Jefferson's apartment on the third floor. I mean, the blood led directly to his door. Two days later, police contacted Mr. Jefferson and asked him to turn over his cell phone. He refused, and a detective seized it. A few days later, police obtained a search warrant for the contents of the phone. When questioned about the murder, Mr. Jefferson gave multiple conflicting statements and denied killing the victim. Video surveillance of the apartment complex showed that Mr. Jefferson, another male, and the victim all entered the apartment. The other male eventually left by himself and never came back. The victim never left. The video showed Mr. Jefferson coming and going from the apartment, 
and at one point he had a pillowcase and a black garbage bag. It also showed somebody dragging something on a path leading to the canal late at night. Mr. Jefferson filed a motion to suppress the contents of the cell phone that was seized from him, arguing that it was illegally seized without a warrant in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The trial court denied the motion, citing to Purifoy v. State, where the first DCA held that seizure of property in open view is presumptively reasonable if there is probable cause to associate the property with criminal activity. Mr. Jefferson was subsequently convicted at trial of the first-degree murder, and he appealed the denial of the suppression motion to the 6th DCA. Well, he originally appealed to the 5th DCA, but the case was transferred to the 6th after it was created at the beginning of the year. Seizure of private property generally requires a warrant unless there is probable cause to believe the property contains contraband or evidence of a crime and an applicable exception to the warrant requirement exists, such as exigent circumstances. In Purifoy, the police seized Mr. Purifoy's clothing at a hospital while he was there for treatment. The first DCA held that under the, plain, uh, under the open view doctrine, because they had probable cause that the clothes which were covered in blood was associated with criminal activity, the seizure was justified. But here, the state never argued the open view doctrine and didn't present any evidence at the suppression hearing that Mr. Jefferson's phone was in open view at the time of the seizure. Was it in his hand? Was it in his pocket? We don't know, and that information was not presented at the suppression hearing. Therefore, the trial court erred in relying on the open view doctrine outlined in Purifoy. So the state argued that there was probable cause and an exception to the warrant requirement existed because the seizure was necessary to prevent the destruction of evidence. So they shifted the analysis here. So the 6th DCA first analyzed whether there was probable cause. At the suppression hearing, the state didn't call any witnesses and instead relied on a police supplement report. So the evidence in that police supplement report and that was before the court of the hearing, was that the victim was dead. The trail of evidence led back to Mr. Jefferson's apartment. Mr. Jefferson knew the victim, was with or near the time of the discovery of the body, and gave conflicting statements to the police. The officers believed that there would be text messages or phone calls or some kind of communications between Mr. Jefferson and the victim on his cell phone. But there was no evidence to support this belief. The 6th DCA found that police were merely speculating that Mr. Jefferson communicated with the victim via his cell phone. The state provided no facts to support that belief. So because there was no probable cause, the 6th DCA didn't have to get to the next question of whether there was an exception to the warrant requirement. So big win for Mr. Jefferson, right? Not so fast. Even though the police illegally seized his phone, and the trial court erred in not suppressing the evidence obtained on the phone, any error was harmless. The state introduced text messages from Mr. Jefferson's phone between him and the victim discussing trading sex for drugs, and they discussed using his apartment for the transaction. But the state was able to elicit the same information from other sources. For example, Mr. Jefferson made phone calls from the jail that were recorded talking about the same thing. And Mr. Jefferson's attorney argued that the messages showed a lack of premeditation. So no harm, no foul. He won the battle, but lost the war. Case affirmed.
that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Lesnetsky Guy on Law, and this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the show notes for links to each case and for a link to the written case summaries. If you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at jeremy at lglawflorida.com. See you next time at the site of the crime.